So organic certification really uh, came out in 2004, like USDA organic. And at that time, organic products, it was very niche, very specialty, uh, very few retailers carried them. And the reason was because it was just priced too high, right? The cost of a conventional product was here and organic was here. It was only accessible to you know either the health nuts right the fanatics or people of very high income that could afford these luxury goods today that's very different right retailers like whole foods and sprouts are you know on par with a kroger alberts and safeway as far as accessibility and the price points between the better products versus the conventional products has come down making a podcast sustainable is hard that's why i'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor Podcorn, a marketplace, literally, for podcast advertising, a place that makes it transparent and easy. We're using Podcorn to get sponsors for the disruptors. And you know what? We can do it without having expensive middlemen charging high fees, which makes it easier for me and podcasters everywhere to make their production sustainable, keep reaching awesome listeners like you guys, and support products and businesses that we like, love, and enjoy. If you run a podcast or you're interested in advertising on podcasts, Hint, hint, it's probably one of the highest performing mediums out there. Go to podcorn.com. That's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com. Check them out if you're running a podcast or if you just want to run more successful, profitable advertising. And if you're interested in the disruptors, you run a business that you think would be a great fit for us in our audience, something we could get behind, sponsors at disruptors.fm. Shoot us an email. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe working together. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. If you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to uplevel yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We did a family trip over the summer to Alabama to a lake house. Went into a grocery store to get some food. The first few aisles, everything you saw, the first few aisles, everything you saw was little Debbie shit designed to give you diabetes and ruin your life. And today we've got two founders of a VC firm trying to fight the fat movement, so to speak, and make the world healthier and more sustainable in the process. We've got brother and sister combo, Philippe and Paulina Shebatorev, I'm going to get it wrong, so I might as well do my best anyways, on the program. They're the founders of Cambridge Company's SPG, a social mission-based VC focused on fixing nutrition, farming, and health worldwide. The pair emigrated to the U.S. after the fall of the Soviet Union, and now their fund are investors in the likes of organic and health food companies like Once Upon a Farm, Wild Friends Foods, Matcha Bar, and dozens more. I really enjoyed this one because they're focused on using e-commerce and entrepreneurship to create a better world by fueling it through capitalism and profit. In today's episode, we discuss how health-focused food and beverage companies are creating a better world, the future of food tech and clean meat. What's the big deal about GMOs? Is it a problem? Is it not? And are they ruining our health? What tech trends Philip and Paulina are most excited about? And the reason there's not enough money invested in food tech. There's one thing that all of us are going to do every day. I don't care if you have to poop, pee, brush your teeth. You are eating food or eventually you are going to die. 
And these companies, the ones that these guys are working with, are the ones who are changing the food you're eating, changing the way you're feeling, and changing the way that we're all living. I know you guys will enjoy this one. If you do, consider sharing the disruptors with a friend. Disruptors.fm slash iTunes. You can subscribe, leave a review, share it around. If you do, all of those things are like the greatest high five in the world and help us make this more long-term and sustainable. Speaking of, you want to unlock our lightning rounds? Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Support us. Please consider doing that. Please consider helping us make this into something sustainable because right now it's so far from that and we need your help to make a bigger impact on the world. And now without further ado, I give you the brother and sister pair, Philip and Polina Chebotorov. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So we were talking a little before the program. You guys raised a ton of money to get into essentially private equity on the real estate side of things and then found a different passion in life. What's your story? What's the quick 30,000 foot overview? Yeah. So prior to 2010, Pauline and I both had corporate jobs. We both quit our jobs at the end of uh, 2010 and started raising capital to make distressed real estate acquisitions. And over a five-year period, we ended up raising $350 million of equity, bought 44 distressed real estate assets. And as we started exiting those and real estate prices started recovering, we started looking at other sectors. And where our passion was, was disrupting consumer products. So we knew that uh, 40% of all customers today are millennials. We know that millennials are four times less likely to buy from multinationals than baby boomers. And so the way that millennials shop, the way that they entertain themselves, and all these different aspects of life, the way that they spend their money, basically, is very different than prior generations. And so our thesis at that time was to monetize that generational shift in spending. And so we made our first investment in a fast growth company called Foodsters, which is an organic, basically think hostess, but lower sugar and organic with Sarah Michelle Geller as one of the co-founders and helped that business take off. Uh, we then invested in a baby food company called Once Upon a Farm. We helped bring in Jennifer Garner as a partner and investor uh, and co-founder into that company. And that company has had over 20x revenue growth uh, since 2017. And since then, we've made over two dozen investments in everything from nutritional supplements, uh, uh, organic feminine care, pet food, nutritional bars, yeah. beverages, all better for you, consumer. And our thesis is it has to be better for you. Like it can't have artificial ingredients, you know, products that cut corners. So on the product side, it really has to add value to the consumer. You said said hosted without the garbage, hostess without the garbage. I'm curious. How do you do something like that? It's so counterintuitive when you look at those packages. Sure. Well, and so what, right, what's the difference between a traditional kind of legacy product, which over the last 50 years has been engineered to be mass produced, margin optimized, which means you're using, you know, low quality ingredients. What Foodsters does is so they only use organic ingredients. They use identity preserved flour, fair trade cocoa, um, biodynamic sugar, which so biodynamic is the step above organic, whereas it really not just focuses on not using pesticides or genetically modified ingredients. Uh, It also focuses on the sustainability of the farming methods. So really curating the highest quality ingredients that our earth provides and making lower sugar, higher nutritional content products that still taste really good in that brand. How do we do something like that on a scale where we can start to reach more people? You kind of run into a problem when you're dealing with most high-end or most health products where they're awesome and incredible for you and you have one of two problems. They're either incredibly expensive and most consumers can't afford them or they're incredibly good for you, but they're not phenomenal for the environment. How do we start to move towards a world where we have a better win-win synergistic type? I, I imagine that's what you guys are trying to build towards. Yes. So it's been it's been going there. So organic certification really uh, came out in 2004, like USDA organic. And at that time, organic products... It was very niche, very specialty. Uh, Very few retailers carried them. And the reason was because it was just priced too high, right? The cost of a conventional product was here and organic was here. It was only accessible to either the health nuts, 
right? The fanatics or people of very high income that could afford these luxury goods. Today, that's very different, right? Retailers like Whole Foods and Sprouts are you know, on par with a Kroger, Albertson, Safeway as far as accessibility and the price points between the better products versus the conventional products has come down. And so there is a price sensitivity diminishment for better for you food and beverage brands that deal with daily routine items. So when we talk about our investments, we're trying to invest in product that can be used often. So like either every day or at least every week versus every season or every occasion. Because consumers, what we've noticed, will start making smaller upgrades to their daily routine versus large upgrade, right? So if a consumer wants to upgrade, you know, the zip code that they live in or the kind of car they drive or the school that they send their kids to. That's going to be expensive. Right? Those are expensive upgrades. But it's much easier to do it with a coffee or a bar or milk. Right. Yeah, if you're avoiding neg- small amount of negative things on a daily basis, it adds up over time, essentially. Well, I think also that today's consumer has seen the older generation spend so much money on healthcare, So they're like, well, we'd rather pay for it up front than on the back end because you can preserve your health with what you put into your body. And we just know too much now, right? We have all the media. Everybody has a smartphone. Um, the latest health documentary on Netflix or Amazon Prime. We just have access to more information than just you know marketing uh, materials during uh, cartoons, uh, you know, from 10, 15 years ago. So why food tech? Why did you guys get so passionate about that? You brought up initially kind of the access point and that it was mainly health nuts getting into it. Were you guys the health nuts? What's your story? And you guys are brothers, <laughs> your brother and sister. What's we, it like building we a business a as a team? <laughs> yes, we are health nuts, you know, no sugar. Uh, trying to eat more plant-based. Uh, we work out five days a week, hike, and yeah, I mean, yeah. W- where are the todays? I mean, we saw we saw the trends that are very prevalent now as very qualitatively as consumers um, and having a background in private equity, right? We just basically started researching it and learning more and realized that there's a big opportunity to invest in this space because ultimately, it's the consumer, right? It's the end user, the person that wants these products but didn't have access to these products that's going to drive whether or not that product is successful, right? It doesn't matter how much money you have, what the product is, who the team is, if the customer doesn't want to buy the product, right? If the customer does want to buy the product, and we're talking about items like uh, Vive Organics, for example, which is an organic wellness shot, went from 70000 a month in revenue to close to a million a month in revenue in about a year period. Consumers wanted that product, right? They voted with their dollar. So yeah, ultimately, it's about finding the white space and investing behind products that fill that white space. And scaling them so they're available to everybody, not just the niche groups. Exactly. And that's that's a big part. That's almost the hardest part. You guys are really in the impact investing space. And I think a big part of that scale up is the money that's coming in. And there's traditionally not been a ton of money in the food tech space and in the health tech space. How have you seen you're that right. change lately? So you're right. Last year, out of $100 billion of venture capital dollars invested, less than 4% went to consumer products. And even a smaller percentage of that went in for better for you, early stage consumer products. The rest went into technology and healthcare. Life sciences, medical. Yep. But when you look at you know the US economy, 70% of the economy is consumer driven. Now, it's not all consumer products. You know, you're talking about cars, you're talking about homes, but consumer products themselves make up 20% of the GDP. So the space is grossly underserved from an investment standpoint, right? And then you have this generation of millennials quickly becoming the largest uh, consumer spending group. So from an investment standpoint, it's there's a lot of opportunity because not a lot of groups are investing in this space. Um, and then what you said about making it accessible, that's a huge challenge also. Uh, so in one of our investments, a baby food company called Once Upon a Farm. So when we first invested, it was very expensive, double the price of a conventional product, fresh. So it had 120, still does, has 120 day shelf life. And because of where it's priced, it was really doing well in dense metropolitan areas where their average incomes were higher. But retailers that were in lower income demographic areas were not really excited about taking on the product because 
they thought their customers wouldn't be able to afford it. And they were right. Over the last year, John Forker, who's the CEO of the company and the team, really went through all the painstaking work to get the product certified by WIC, which is Women's and Children's um, Assistance. And now uh, families of all income demographics can use WIC to purchase Once Upon a Farm, uh, which is the highest quality baby food on the market. So, and the company's obviously gotten a lot of attention and praise for that nationally, but you know, that wasn't, that move wasn't necessarily the move that was gonna make the most money for the company that year, but it was the right move, right? So it's about balancing. And it was essential for what they stand for, you know? How do you, ba- how do you balance that with LPs? So a big issue that I've seen is, most most money's not going into this space because this space isn't the space with the exponential returns. It's the space where you can have incrementally awesome returns over time, but you're not going to hit a thousand x Facebook, a ten thousand x Uber because good good luck doing that with something physical. It just it grows. So it's it's uh you're right. Um, when you look at just all companies in general, it's less than a tenth of one percent of companies will reach a billion dollar valuation. So whether you're in consumer, right, and KindBar sold 50% of itself to Mars in 2017 for $2 billion, you have Buy that sold for 1.7 billion. So you have you know, multi-billion dollar companies in the space, just like you have multi-billion dollar tech companies, but no matter what space you're in, there's it's a tenth of 1% chance that the company that you're invested in is going to reach a billion dollar valuation or higher. But there is more activity uh, in the food and beverage space on the sell side. Some of them are just not glamorized or talked about because they're not, you know, a billion dollar sale. So there's, yeah, they're still they're still solid acquisitions. It's just one of the one of um, the challenges I've seen. What do you what are your thoughts about lab grown meat or clean meat and to the movement that we're seeing now to move away from traditional animal agriculture, both with uh, Beyond Burger type deal and then the stuff that we're growing ourselves in the lab? So I mean, I have very I have uh, opinions. Controversial on that. opinions. No, I don't think it's controversial. I, I think it's something that should be addressed because you know it's not sustainable long term uh, to to cultivate or to grow, you know, to, I'm sorry, to grow, (laughs) to, to have cattle just to raise, raise. yeah. Yeah. But the thing is the current offerings like beyond meat or what impossible Impossible burger, burger. they're not necessarily the healthiest alternative. Yeah. Especially the the ones that use soy for protein. Right. Right, Correct. So so the GMO soy, which is filled with glyphosate, um, but there's no question. So I mean, I, I think just, it's going to get better, though. There's going to be a lot of innovation. Well, there yeah. is a lot of innovation. What about on the actual lab-grown side? So cultured cells, taking existing protein or existing muscle cells from a cow, from a chicken, etc., and then extrapolating those out further in a similar to a yeast or a, a beer brewing type process. Those I think are very. I would love to try it. I haven't tried one yet. Yeah, have you? I, I haven't eaten one personally, so that would be interesting. But it's all so all forecasts are showing that basically beef consumption is going to decline. I mean, I read one study that said by 2050, there'll be 50 percent less cows being yeah. raised for meat, which is a huge decline in beef consumption. Right. I know there's a lot of companies that are like growing cells, both on beef, chicken, as well as uh, seafood. It would be interesting to see where that goes. I think today, right, it may seem like a stretch that U.S. consumers will love. We may be, right, it might our, be weird to our eat kids me. or our grandkids may, may be thinking, how come you were so weird, right? I think that's what uh, where the change is going to be. I think things that we perceive weird today uh, are going to seem very normal tomorrow. And what we're doing today with unsustainable, you know, agriculture is going to seem like we were crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Especially just considering having to take something out back and shoot it to have dinner. That'll, I imagine in 20 years, that will seem incredibly outdated. Yeah, for sure. So we talked a bit about founders making decisions that aren't necessarily in the best 
purely economic interest of the company. How do you think about the best way to generate impact on the world? There's starting a conventional business, there's B Corps, there's charities, there's volunteering, there's a lot of different models to go about impacting change. What what are your thoughts in terms of looking at them both on an impact and an investment perspective? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of the brands that we are personally investing in, just the product itself is already making an impact on the health of the consumer. Some of them have a lot more social missions attached to them, but uh, like sustainable farming. But for the most part, the product itself is disrupting the, the, the legacy brands version of what they're eating. Are you doing mostly D2C, direct to consumer? I know it's omni-channel. Yeah. Yeah. So our brands uh, sell DTC, but also in retail. And we like omni-channel over just purely retail or purely DTC. Um, I think that... Right. It's it's super important for us and for the brands that we're investing in to make an impact. But the balance there is right in order to make that impact, the business has to make money. Right. It has to have strong margins. That margin allows you to reinvest. And one of the areas of reinvestment, right, is this uh, giving back. So it has to be balanced because if it's not balanced, right, if you go out with just this outlook of we have to give back, we have to do good but you don't have a sustainable business model behind that, you're going to run out of money very quickly and you're not going to be able to give away long for long. Yeah. And that was why I was interested in having you guys on because I think the businesses that are able to bake good into their actual product delivery are the best ones because then they're making money while making the change. And it really connects with the consumers. I think the consumers now are more demanding and that's they want to see that. They want to feel connected to their brand. What are some of the big lessons you guys have learned? You've worked with a decent number of companies to date. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean so many, so many. Uh, on the brand side, like m- mistakes that they've made or? Yeah, or... mistakes they've made, lessons that have been beneficial, things that you pass around between the companies because it seems to work well for everybody. I yeah. mean, yeah, unfortunately, some brands that we know uh, raised at too high of a valuation and at some point they couldn't go further and they had to shut down. They tried to do a down round and then they couldn't. And unfortunately, some really good products are no longer available because they're no, no longer operational. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, so we've seen, obviously, every single situation you can imagine at this point. We've seen brands become extremely successful and cash flow positive and we've seen brands struggle we've seen brands struggle have a down year and then bounce back up and but what would be the biggest mistakes you've seen i think like the b- failures basically well no no i think the biggest mistake at least in a in a venture backed right or investment backed business um, would be setting unrealistic expectations um, on valuation but also not accounting for burns so i think the kind of the biggest topic of 2019 is reducing the burn rate um, and focusing on profitability versus growing top line at all costs. That is the biggest theme in investment of the year because of debacles like WeWork and Uber, right? That grew tremendously, but right. But this happens, but this has been an issue all across the board, all the way down to very small companies where we've been told for so long in the space that grow at all costs, We'll figure out the unit economics later. As long as you capture market share, that's what's going to drive your enterprise value, your valuation. But ultimately, right, the music stops somewhere because if you're not going to make money or your unit economics aren't sound, you know, no matter even the $100 billion vision fund, it's not enough money to burn forever, right? So ultimately, you got to figure it out. And I think that's the biggest lesson of 2019 is it's not all about top line at all costs, right? It's that measured approach of growing top line, but also watching the bottom line. Absolutely. I can sell 50 cents for a dollar all day long. And very soon I'm running out of those dollars. It's not, it's not the best (laughs) deal. So you brought up, you brought up GMOs and glyphosate earlier, and I want to play the flip side with the devil's advocate. A, explain a little bit more about the glyphosate deal in terms of why that's negative. And then also from a the perspective of uh, most of the most of the people that are using GMOs for farming would be in developing or third world countries. They're farmers there trying to get by. It's not necessarily that they're doing that because they want to do that. They're doing that because business wise or survival wise, that's what that's what works. Yep. So and that's and look, that's a good argument. And that's the argument that these um, these companies like Monsanto um, and others uh, used right in order to develop genetically modified products. It was all meant to uh, drive yield. yield. Um, 
So these genetically modified crops, they're modified to withstand different temperatures. They're modified um, to withstand higher doses of pesticides. And therefore, right, they grow bigger, they grow healthier, bugs don't eat them, and farmers have more product to sell. But that, right, sounds good in theory. But when you look at hunger rates in the world, right, this, the GMOs were supposed to feed the world. People are still going hungry. Food is still being wasted because where it's produced versus where it's needed is uh, there's a discrepancy. And then you have all these different impacts, right? So spraying fields with more and more pesticide creates not just toxicity levels that then get passed on to humans, but also in the environment, right? As runoff in the water, it impacts wildlife. So there is a price to perceived abundance. And so one of the arguments is, right, there's intelligent design in everything, right? And a tomato was designed right, by Mother Nature to be this certain way. And so messing with it so you can right, pump it full of, uh, you know, spray it full of pesticides is not the way we all intend to function. I think with technology, though, and more sustainable farming methods, and I don't think we're there today, right? But I think over time, the goal is, right, to get to a cleaner, less chemical dependent way of farming. I would definitely agree with that. I would say there's definitely not intelligent design in a tomato. So evolutionarily, well, it's, it's DNA in the DNA that creates a tomato. Like, why is a tomato a tomato? I mean, I'm just saying there's intelligent design in, in the way the world works. Maybe not specifically, right? A, I just meant in terms of uh, uh, things, things evolved by trying things that didn't work and failing off. So I, what I'm trying to get to is... I just it, love tomatoes, so I thought that I love, toma I love tomatoes, too. I'm <laughs> going to put that out there. Um, I know a lot of people are against... And I'm not against genetically modifying something. I'm against the pesticides that they're using because of it. Because based off of the science that I've seen, that's the real, that's the real cause. So you, you brought up the glyphosate deal and also well, the soil, soil erosion. Yeah, basically ruining your gut. That's what I've seen. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, the, and that's what a lot of people feel. And that's yeah. why it's driving. Yeah. It's the, the pesticide is the biggest issue with GMOs. It's basically, yeah. I mean, it's the cops get bulletproof armor and the, the gangsters get uh, armor piercing bullets. It's kind of a, <laughs> a, an arms race, so to speak. How do we, how do we handle topic? Because even when you brought it up and you were kind of explaining it, there's, there's challenges between getting the science out there and sounding Sounding woo-woo. So, for instance, we, we have an outbreak now of, geez, every disease because people aren't vaccinating their kids. And they're not, and they're doing it not because of a good scientific reason, but because scientifically it sounds smart. How do, how do we handle that? Because a lot of times those things are tied together in terms of the beliefs people have. A lot of people that believe GMOs are bad believe vaccinations are also bad. How do we, how do we disseminate good science to avoid bad outcome? So I think, so I mean, there may be a correlation, right, of people who think GMOs are bad also don't want to vaccinate their kids. But the I don't thing think is, we... people were vaccinating for a lot longer than there's been these current pesticides used in the last 30 years that are now disrupting the gut. You know, people have been vac being vaccinated since, what, 20s, 30s, and they were fine. It's only this last 20 years. You can kind of link that. The increase in chronic the illness. Yeah, but I think, but I think as far as where we're investing and the kind of social missions, right, that our investment strategies aligned with, yeah. don't really cross into the vaccine world or uh, pharmaceuticals or it's just not our space. Yeah, I think so. I would agree. People just yeah. need to do their own research. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's just. At least in the U.S., if you tell me one belief, one belief someone has, I can name almost all the other beliefs they have, which is dangerous <laughs> because we have we have this extremization where we associate with the in-group and we more or less align our beliefs to fit those of others because that's what we're seeing from our Facebook friends' posts and that's what the algorithms are optimizing us towards. I think I think it's dangerous that we live in a world where it is so easy to to explain away someone's. It, where it is so easy to have two separate groups with such dissimilar beliefs you've got you're saying they're conformists i'm saying i'm saying in a lot of ways most of the world seems like conformists of two different parties yeah. at least in the u.s we agree i see that yeah, yeah that's true speaking of the u.s you guys both emigrated here from from russia quite a while ago with almost nothing what was that like 
It was it was hard, but I mean, we came in 1993. Um, we left everything behind, so we started here. Um, didn't speak any English, and just for the first 10 years, had to adjust. And uh, we went to school here, learned the language. Like in Russia, so in Russia in in the 90s. So the communism was falling. Um, there were six politi- uh, political factions all struggling for power. There was violence. Organized crime started to become very prevalent. Um, corruption. And so it was well, a very... That's why we left. Right. That's why our family made the, the choice to leave um, and flee. But right, going from that highly unstable political environment, very unsafe, a lot of uncertainty to the U.S., where Which was the promise of, you know, the American dream was a much better alternative. And I, I think we're really happy that our parents brought us here because we are living that dream. Yep. Well, and it's so I think what drives us to kind of always trying to be better, trying to improve is knowing that sacrifice that our parents made. Our dad was in his 60s. Our mom was in her 50s. They had friends, a whole life, careers there. And they sacrificed that all so their kids um, Polina and I and our younger brother uh, can all have a better future, right? And a, be raised in a safer place. But um, nothing was guaranteed. So we were really trying to, you know, make them proud and make them feel like they did. That it was it worth it, of, right? That it was all worth it. And I think it is. Yeah. Growing up, and probably still today, my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Home Alone. I loved seeing the family leave for the holidays and the kid go through the chaos, having the home get robbed, the whole nine yards. It was hilarious. Do you know you're five times less likely to have your home robbed than you are to have damage from water leakage? That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Flow, the company that's giving you peace of mind for the holidays and every day. Flow can detect up to a drop a minute. You know that little dude, dude. Dude, which drives you nuts. And for a limited time, you can save $150 off the installation of a Flow device by going to disruptors.fm slash flow, that's F-L-O, and using discount code disrupt15. Save money, save water, save your home. It's the number one way to save money on your water bill, expensive home insurance and damage claims, and have that peace of mind knowing that that awesome new carpet you got, it isn't going to get ruined by complete soakage. We've all been there. Something goes wrong. We lived in New York and had a sump pump. Things happen. So for a limited time, $150 off your installation, disruptors.fm slash flow. That's F-L-O and use coupon code disrupt15, all caps, at checkout to save 150 bucks. I don't know about you, but I do all my best work at coffee shops. And that's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, TunnelBear. If you want to protect your data while you're on public Wi-Fi, you don't want people stealing your passwords, your credit card information, or let them get into your business's back end, then check out TunnelBear. TunnelBear.com slash disruptors to support the show, secure your work on the go, and keep your team protected so they can be productive and safe anywhere they decide. And unlike other VPNs, expensing's easy. There's no licenses to juggle, no one-off invoices to manage. It's just fast, easy, simple. Stream movies from any country, regardless of what Netflix says. Run your business from Starbucks without worrying about hackers. And of course, all at fast speeds. Just visit tunnelbear.com disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Tunnelbear.com disruptors. For more details and to secure that Starbucks work that you know you're doing. And now, let's get on with the program. Do you think if your parents tried to come today, they'd still be let in? What do you think about the changing dynamics and situations that's playing <laughs> out, both immigration and then U.S.-Russia? I think they would, they, you know, they would think that they're going to try to influence the elections, and they'd be like, no. Um, no, I think, I think, I mean, there was, it was a very unique time where uh, on our mom's side, her family, her whole family has been here since the 80s. On our dad's side, they're all, you know, from Russia, but he's older. So they really helped us. So our mom's family helped us come over. They sponsored us, helped us get situated. So we had, you know, help from family to do that. I know I personally am worried about the isolationism that I see the U.S. having lately, especially considering something like 50% of most founders of Fortune 500, et cetera, are, are immigrants. What what do we do about that? How do we... is is there something we can do? Is that something? What are your thoughts? Do wait. I mean, on the so on the political actions of the United States and the world, just preventing it from happening. We see we see a backlash against immigrants and immigration, despite the fact that they're the ones who are driving most of the change and innovation in the world, especially well, in the U.S. 
So what I say to that is this I country think, was founded on immigrants. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I think, think I think that there's right. rhetoric, right, and you know, at high levels of government or in media, right, that the U.S. is trying to protect its trade interests in China or right, feuding with Russia, which has been happening for Forever. decades and decades. I mean, I don't see what's happening now as anything new. But the sentiment that we see in the business community, whether we're in Los Angeles. In Chicago, in New York, or in Portland, Oregon, or right smaller met- metropolitan areas, right? Um, we don't see any discrimination or isolationism. Um, I mean, we're Russian Jews in business. Nobody throughout through since we've been in business, n- not one person has said like anything negative about the fact that we're Russian or that they wouldn't do business with us because of our nationality or you know race or whatever. I mean, so we just don't see that in our dealings. Obviously it exists and obviously there's there's people that are gonna And that's uh, probably because we came and we're productive and we're contributors back to the society. Yeah. It's kind of hard to criticize. Yeah. And it, it could also be it could also be that right, you just you seek out those who you are most connected with and Right. As open minded people who want to be productive and do good in the world, we're not usually conversing or discussing or associating ourselves with people that are filled with hate in any sense. So it could be just right. But I think, look, it's always going to exist. There's always going to be people that are going to hate, unfortunately. And then there's always people that are going to be accepting and open minded. I would agree. I would say the one scary thing is that you mentioned uh, associating with the people that you have similar beliefs to. And I think that that's what we've seen a lot of the the, especially I mean, around the world, you more or less have metropolitan cities, which have a certain culture feel set of core values and then you have the the rural areas which have a more conservative set of core values that are kind of not aligning and also equality kind of not matching anymore as progress and innovation seems to stem to the cities but i think social media is blurring those lines and it'll continue to right having access so associating with people that are like-minded used to be confined to your geography and now it's less confined to right ge- geographical proximity, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. And most people that we associate with are in business anyway. So we're, it's not just on like social. Yeah. So you guys run a little bit of an unconventional venture firm, so to speak. You're more of like a portfolio firm is what it seems like. Building up an e-commerce portfolio. What What is your model exactly? So we identify businesses so 70% of the investments that we make are in companies that are 20 to 100 million in sales. And then 20, 25% of the types of companies we invest in are companies that are less than 10 million in sales. And the reason for that is, so just statistically, less than 3% of companies will reach 10 million in revenue and less than 1% of all startups will get to 20 million. So by having a larger allocation of funds to later stage companies, we're able to reduce the risk profile, but still have upside potential. And then when we can be very hands-on and very involved, we'll invest usually one company at a time that's earlier stage, that's below 10 million in sales, and really help use our capabilities, our relationships, not just capital, to help scale that business to milestones of 5 million, ultimately 10 million in revenue, ultimately 15, 20, et cetera, which obviously takes a lot more time. It's a lot riskier, but... If it's done right, the valuation is much lower and there's a a lot of enterprise value that can be created versus paying a premium for that enterprise value once it's been created and the situation is more de-risked. What about synergistic value? You guys have a PE background and you're basically building a perfect PE portfolio. Ever considered trying to merge companies together and create competitors to larger players? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in our pet food business, uh, True Pet, so it's in the process of acquiring its third, uh, the third pet food company um, and going public. Yeah. And it, we, so there's synergies in that sense where, right, you can put several snack brands together and have back end accounting be the same or have the same sales team sell all products. But there's also synergy in products that aren't necessarily in the same category. So for example, um, every year we host a founder party for all the executives and founders, leadership teams of our portfolio companies, because ultimately, right, all these brands are all looking for the same thing. They're looking, right, they're sharing marketing techniques, they're sharing retail distribution, they're sharing 
know, other lessons that they've learned, what worked, what hasn't. And so there's just a lot of synergy because all the businesses are consumer facing and consumer product businesses. So they can realize a lot of learnings, but also a lot of relationships from one another. And their customers are the same as the other guy's customers for the most part with that right. overlap that we were talking about. Yeah, I imagine you could get some really interesting synergies with that. I want to chit chat with you about after the program about it. What is the yeah. future of e-commerce? I think it's going to grow yeah. even more and more. I mean, it's just so easy to just do like a Shopify click and have it delivered to your house, you know, and that was just not even available a few years ago. And the prices are getting lower and lower and it makes no sense to schlep all the way to the store. What do you think about Amazon? Are we are we entering an era where retail stores do finally start to really die or there's been a little bit of a resurgence? But God, people I, I, like to discover things, especially like things that you want to feel and touch, like produce, for example. I think people will still be going to the grocery store for that. Yeah, things things that offer an experience, uh, yeah, will will still be around. And retailers that don't focus on the experience and catering to that will continue to disappear. We always we always joke that. So Amazon obviously is such an important company that's just changed so many aspects of human life here in the U.S. But yeah, I mean, Amazon's going to continue to push the limits of e-commerce, quicker delivery times. So that should help further spur growth in e-commerce, right? The investments that, that these companies like Amazon are making. But it's all for the benefit of the consumer. The consumer is driving that demand. It is. I feel like what I'm seeing is a separation of two separate things. So you're go seeing a more high-end brand focus and a more lower-end generic focus. And the entire middle is being weeded out. I'm curious if you guys see similar. Yeah. Yeah. That's a yeah, that's a good point. So there's private label, which focuses on right the best possible price, lowest possible price. But a couple of our brands joined in and started private labeling for some of these, you know, for like Costco or Amazon. So it's how fast can you jump in to beat them at their own game, you know? That is the question. So unique question slash challenge for you guys. What's it like? Working together as brother and sister. Um, it's good. I mean, we both, so we have a lot of overlap on what we focus on, but we also do a lot of different things and we get along really well. I mean, we've been in business since 2010, so. Yeah, going 10 years. So far, uh, so far, so good. Right. And then, you know, we, sometimes I'm focusing on the qualitative and he's focusing on the quantitative and sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah. And right. I think when we were kids and we came here from Russia, um, we both of us didn't speak English. It was very difficult to make friends. We were kind of forced to be friends. I think that developed a lot of trust, right? And in business, trust is the most important thing. So I think... And I think it's good to have both perspectives of the female and the male, especially when it comes to consumer, because it's really split between 50-50. Right. Half you the that customers up. are women and half the customers are men. And maybe right. there's more women shopping for the male yeah. households as well. And like you yeah, and I... It's, pro it's probably like 70 to 80% women and 20 to 30% men. 85% female driven in the food and beverage consumer. So not all consumer, but food yeah. and beverage, yeah. And yet 3% of venture dollars go to women. Well, we're, right. it's about 65% of our companies are female-owned or co-owned. So we do like to yeah, we have a very high support the female entrepreneurs. What do you find as the unique benefits of doing that? Not just because a lot of people talk about diversity, and I think there's benefits from doing it. No, but they're really kicking ass in operations. Yeah, exactly. So I think they're really hungry to prove it. And the ones that are given the chance, I mean, they really outperform. Someone. Yeah. Well, and the way, so the way that that happened, right, we didn't set out, we didn't, you know, go out and raise capital for the purpose of investing yeah, in female founded brands. We just, right, after making investments, we realized we have a very high concentration of female founded or female led brands. But they're starting products that the consumer demands. And if we just discussed the, on the food and beverage consumer, if it's mostly women going to the stores, who better to design the products for than women themselves? Exactly. I feel like I feel like your LPs make you guys more flexible in what you're able to invest in. How do you how do you suggest for investors or VCs coming up? So, for instance, I, I don't think you guys took any money from Saudi Arabia. And I don't think, et cetera, et cetera. The, but the people that you take money from influence whether you wanted to or not the investments that you make. 
And you guys have an impact investing focused fund, so to speak. Yeah. How'd you think about that when you guys were initially getting started? So, so the way we looked at it, right, is A, we can make money in different industries, right? We can make money producing toxic chemicals and selling them, or we can make money producing organic food, right? We could also take capital from various different sources, right? There's no shortage of capital for a good deal. But our investors are very much behind our mission, right? And it's just to clean up the nutritional landscape and really disrupt the consumer. How do you find those investors? Everywhere. Um, So I think it's it's just relationship, right? It's all about relation building. I mean, right, if you're going to go meet with 10 different potential investors, right, like on 10 different dates, only one of those may end up clicking with you, right? And you'll see eye to eye and they'll want to back you. And, and the other nine may not. you communicate to them, you know, right. what you're behind. So there's, there's, it's just about being out there and being in the community and, right, surrounding yourself in the circle that you want to be a part of, right? And so if you want to be the best investor, surround yourself with really good investors that you respect, that you think you can learn from, right? And I think just by nature, I mean, if you can explain to them how they can make money, but then also contribute to doing good, I mean, and just by nature, I think a lot of people, more people would gravitate towards that. But you have to really communicate to them how they would also make money. But you would be doing that anyway. But differently. I think some people, some people would hear that. And they would really, it would really resonate with them, right? Of course, I can potentially make money and help the world. And some people, unfortunately, they just don't care, right? They say, I don't care. Yeah, you I want to make more them. money over helping the world. While others, right, may even say, I don't even care if I make any money. I just don't want to lose any money, but I want to change the world, right? There's so many different types of individuals and investors and types of investors and foundations, endowments that you just have to, right? First, you have to have a solid business plan, something that makes sense and something that you passionately believe in, and then go out and present it. And you'll find those who connect and those who won't. What about exits? So exits are super important for VCs because that's generally speaking your Mm -hmm. upside. And what, what we've seen a lot in the food and beverage space is most of the exits have to happen to conventional food companies. So like a Nestle buying an honest tea or something similar. What do you think about companies and their ability to IPO or go the distance when there are other companies that might not be as aligned as actual acquirers? Right. Well, there's actually, if you look at the numbers, there's more acquisitions happening in the private equity space than to a strategic or IPO. Interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. But um, so even companies like Nestle, Unilever, um, Kellogg, Post, right, Coca-Cola. So when they acquire brands, there's a reason they're acquiring, right? And the reason is because that brand is doing something that they feel like they don't have the capability to do Or reaching a customer that they currently don't have or lost. So it's like buying back their customer. And generally what, what these big brands do when they buy these these companies as they leave them alone. Because so a big company like Nestle or Post or Kellogg, they're not like evil corporate corporations. In fact, most of them want to change their offering, right? They put out their sustainability goals. They put out like General Mills puts out all these goals of um, how much investment they're going to do over the next year, two years, five years, 10 years into organic farming. But the companies, they're stuck. They're stuck because 90% of their revenue, right, is coming Golden from these handcuffs. Right. So they can't, right, if they change where 90% of their revenue is coming from, it's going to isolate their base, right? They want to change, but as long as customers continue to buy these awful products, unfortunately, right, these are publicly traded companies, they have shareholders, um, they can't blow up the entire company in order to, right, and there's just not enough infrastructure to do that all at once. So what they're doing is they're making investments in acquiring these better for you products and investing in um, better offerings. They're cleaning up incrementally their existing offerings by reducing sugar, reducing the amounts of colorings that they add, in part because they know that that's right. Customers are becoming more aware of what they're putting in their bodies and they want to offer what customers are looking for. But also because I think at all levels, right, at the individual level, but also at the corporate level, there is starting to build the sense of responsibility of and the consumers hold these big companies accountable for that as well, as well as the stock analysts, right? 
what are you doing to make things better, right? Incrementally. So we don't perceive, right? We don't perceive the large strategics as, you know, these evil big behemoths. Um, I think they they genuinely do want to make a difference and they actually are investing a lot of money, not just in acquiring these better brands, but also making a deeper impact within their portfolio as well. Yeah, in a lot of ways, their hands are tied to the wheel and they've got to do the best they can with what they've been given. Uh, You guys are in this space. You're seeing the most interesting stuff. What are your health routines look like? Do you guys have any interesting biohacking things you're using, devices, things you're tracking, ways you eat, exercise, sleep, etc., that you think people would be interested in? I mean, definitely, like, I start my morning with a Vive shot, which is an yeah, immunity same. boost. Vive organic shot and a Tosi bar. Hold on. When so you say shot, do you mean, like, you're popping that thing in a uh, butt cheek or you're taking, oh, like, I a like drink? How are. No, no, no. It's um, <laughs> a little shot. Like, think of a the size of, you know, like a five-hour energy, but obviously it's not. It's just natural uh, cold press. Uh, ginger turmeric. Ginger. Well, yeah. there's different skews, okay, yeah. but ginger turmeric is the one that Philip and I are obsessed about. Yeah. And then uh, these Tosi bars. I don't know if you can see from the thing. They're just the cleanest stuff. Um, it's an it's a low protein. sugar. It's an organic low sugar uh, plant based protein snack, and they're just amazing. Like we gotta send you some. Send us uh, after the program. Send us an address for samples. We'll hook it up. It's all protein. You, you may want to, you may want to speak to Five Stephanie and Chelsea who are the founders because they're like just incredible. The food tech stuff is super interesting because it is something where sure everyone has shoes, everyone has clothes, but we eat food every freaking day. And anyone that's willing to argue that putting a medicine in your body affects you should be able to, in my opinion, understand that putting food in your body affects you. Go, go drink a c- Coke and tell me how you feel after. If you feel like you just got a little bit of diabetes, then you're you're ding ding right on. What <laughs> technology or trend are you most excited about outside of the stuff we've talked about so far? I'm gonna I'm really curious to see what they're gonna do with uh, alternatives for fish or seafood. Oh, have you guys checked out Finless Foods? I have not. Super interesting company. We had them on the podcast Finless, a while back. I'm gonna have to try yeah, that. Yeah, they're lab growing bluefish to, uh, bluefin tuna. And does it taste? Do you, have you tasted it? I haven't tasted it yet. It's I think it's a little too expensive for me to taste, but they're finally getting the costs down. Um, le, le, uh, bluefin, I mean tuna is, is very overfished. All, all fish pretty much are. We're going to have more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. But they're Ooh. basically tackling the most expensive variety of, of tuna. And they seem to be getting it down there. I, I'm super interested in the whole lab-grown meat space because I do think that once you hit similar levels of price and you hit equal levels of nutrition, almost becomes unconscionable to do it any other way. Yeah. Yeah, it's going there. I think for me, the biggest thing that's at least on my mind and what I'm seeing this year is the elimination or reduction of single-use plastics. So whether it's upcycling single-use plastics into right longer-term uh, usage products like taking water bottles and making them into tech accessories, right, that you're going to not use once, but you're going to use for the next year or two, um, having more sustainable or plant-based packaging solutions, but that can, A, meet the margin requirements, right? Because the <coughs> bottle can't be more than the product itself, right? The packaging can't double the price of the product because then you feel warm and fuzzy, but nobody's buying it, unfortunately. So having an economically viable and commercially viable alternative to single-use plastics, basically plastics that aren't biodegradable, I think is uh, is it going to be a big innovation. Whoever cracks the code on that first is going to make a ton of money. And pro tip, if you get one of those reusable Starbucks cups, occasionally they'll give you a refill as opposed to an actual new cup of coffee. So if you accidentally <laughs> save a dollar and 50 cents, you didn't hear it here. Do you guys do much in terms of genetic testing or anything of those nature? Genetic testing, biomarker testing, et cetera, to measure health? Yeah, I do. So, yeah. I mean, not we, we don't have any investments in that space. But, but personally. Yeah, yeah, personally, what like, do you do? Uh, so I do 23andMe. I've actually done the 23andMe as well as food sensitivity tests. Are you guys worried at all about the privacy concerns? I'm not. I mean, they anybody that wants your information is yeah. going to get it either way somehow. So I mean, so the way right, the way that I looked at that right, like they're going to connect, collect my DNA. They're going to know everything about that. me. Um, I'm not planning on committing a murder where I'm going to have to run away and escape, and God forbid somebody has my DNA or 
right? Like, I'm, I'm not that worried about it. I'm proud of the person I am, so I don't yeah. think it can harm me anyway. Did you see the California State Killer, Um, the, the Golden State Killer? Basically, one of his relatives did a, a DNA right. test, and then they ended up busting him for that. Right. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a little bit crazy. I will say that I am worried about that space. I, I, after I may or may not have done those tests using different names, I deleted my results and tried to get out of the database just because I don't trust the companies, given the fact that Facebook will sell your soul for two cents and Google will do something similar. I don't necessarily trust the other companies holding this data to holding the, the source code of you. It's a, it can be a little bit scary. At least that's my perspective. But, yeah. And look, that's a very, that's a valid perspective. And I think a lot of, there's definitely a lot of people that share that. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of them. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. I've had like some of friends yeah. of mine, they're like, I will never do a DNA test to know my ancestry because I don't want, it's too unknown. I don't. Look, I think whatever. at least fr- from where I'm sitting, right. I think that when cars were being, you know, produced and first commercialized. Um, there was people that were saying these cars are going to be awful. They're not going to write. They're going to disrupt the horse and buggy industry. What are all the horse farmers going to do? What are all the people that make carriages going to do? It's going to create more accidents, right? There's there's always an argument to make over progress. Ooh, let's and, play devil's advocate though. That sounds no, no, really no, similar no. to what you were saying to GMOs. But on the reverse side, well, look, there's always an argument to be made against progress because progress makes people uncomfortable because it makes changes. And some of the changes are positive and some of the changes have negative consequences. It's always the case, right? With cars, and there's many ways to go about them, right? The safe way in the case of the GMOs are non-safe with the pesticides. So, yeah. so okay. I'm always for generally speaking, right? I wouldn't say always, but for the most part, I'm always for progress but in a responsible way, right? Or as responsible as possible. Yeah, Zuckerberg, move fast and improve things. We don't have to break them all. I got one <laughs> last question for you guys before you tell people a little more about you, your companies, where to find you. And that is, if you had to leave people with one thing, it could be anything, a quote, a call to action, anything you think would be beneficial, preferably something we haven't talked about yet, what would it be and why? You can each do one. Um, I would just say, right, you only live once. And this life is like, I believe we're all meant to experience life in a very full way. And just not to forget that, I always try to remind myself, just go out and take take in what the world is offering. And I guess my advice or quote would be, there's no such thing as a no, just a yes with conditions. Or a time time stamp on it. (laughs) You can always make things happen. It's just all about the persistence and how you go about yeah, it. But uh, there's been plenty of times I've heard no, and then I got a yes after a few other tries. So there's no such thing as a no, but a yes with conditions. And the follow-up emails are often incredibly helpful if you hear nothing. If you follow up enough times, just maybe you hear something. Persistence, persistence, that's definitely where it's at. Guys, thanks for coming on and doing this. Tell people a little bit more about you guys, what you do, where they can find you. Uh, you can find us at uh, cambridgespg.com. Uh, email is just paulina at cambridgespg.com or philip. But we're looking at companies. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram. You're not that active on Instagram. No, no, but we're there. We're there. That's true. <laughs> but uh, what we're looking for, we're looking for brands that are doing what 20 million plus in revenue but still have a long way to go and need us to help them get there and are solving big problems and making people healthier in the process love what you guys are doing (laughs) thanks for that thanks for coming on guys thank Thank you you so much for having us you gotta email us um a good address for samples. We got to send you some Tosi bars. Definitely. And that was another, that was, okay, that's my last question. How do you avoid, how do you avoid the investor 15 when you're doing a food tech investment company and you've got people constantly pitching you with new food ideas? How do you avoid putting on the pounds? Uh, They're all healthy food. uh, One, one word, Equinox gym. (laughs) Equinox gym. So that's where all the subscriptions are. (laughs) Just taste. No, no, no. Right. Yeah. You always wonder, you see those guys in Shark Tank constantly killing it. But they're also, uh, they probably got those tummies there as well. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming on, guys. And if you're listening, then go do something important and meaningful in the world. This is something where I feel like most of, if not all the businesses you guys invest in are mission oriented. And I think that's a better way of building a better world. If you bake good into the 
into the bottom line, so to speak. It just happens. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for having us on. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.